Welcome to the Betterism Podcast, a learning community seeking out life's unusual lessons from its unlikely places. I'm your host, Glenn Binger, author, teacher, and coach, and I'm here to help spark some collective growth. I hope you'll stick around and teach us a thing or two, but first, a few words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a magical fungi supplement company. No, we're not talking magic mushrooms. We're talking natural organic fungi. Lion's mane, chaga, turkey tail, reshi, uh, cordyceps, you name it. They have all different kinds of products available on their website. Um, blends that will help you think, uh, blends that will help you defend and build up your immune system, um, adaptogens that will help you chill out and relieve some of the stress of day-to-day life, especially this day and age. Um, Four Sigmatic has a lot of educational content on their website as well. If you click on their learn tab up top, they actually have something called the Mushroom Academy, which is very helpful. Uh, It's where I learned about the different fungi, mushrooms, and what they do specifically. Personally, I'm a big fan of their Think Blend or their Think Coffee Grinds with Lion's Mane and Chaga. Really kind of sets my brain on fire when I'm sitting down to write or record or put something together for a project I'm working on. Um, They have all kinds of products from proteins to coffee blends to uh, extracts. Um, Check them out at foursigmatic.com. That's four spelled out, F O U R. S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com. If you use the promo code BETTERISM at checkout, you can save 10% off your order. That's foursigmatic.com. This episode is brought to you by Turnstile Coffee Roasters. Turnstile is a Jersey Shore staple, one of my favorites here in my hometown, Belmar, New Jersey. Um, They are fresh roasted specialty They offer a wide variety of beans and grinds from across the globe, Indonesia, Latin America, Africa, you name it. Um, They have an app you can order online. You can call ahead if you are here in the New Jersey area. Um, You can also order online. So if you're not local to New Jersey, you can find them online at turnstylecoffee.com. They offer wholesale. They offer small bags, grinds, beans, you name it. Um, So check them out, Turnstile Coffee Roasters out of Belmar, New Jersey, at turnstylecoffee.com. Alrighty, hi friends. Welcome to the Betterism Podcast. You know me, I'm your host, Glenn. Today we have a fellow writer guest, Christine Eberly. The brand new book coming out, Finding God Abiding. It's an essay collection. Um, she's a spiritual teacher and a, retreat, a retreat, uh I guess, facilitator, Christine, we can definitely dive into that once we get in. But Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Glenn. It's good to be here. Um, I'm super stoked to have you on. You know, uh, our mutual contact, Ben Tanzer, kind of introduced each other. And I was kind of doing my homework before the episode and kind of digging around, looking at some of the work that you've put out, your book coming out and things like that. Um, And I feel like we align on a lot of a lot of pieces and I'll guess we'll let the conversation go from there. But I figured we would start with your book. that's coming out this June, the essay collection, finding God abiding. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Give it the plug before we do a little deep dive into it. Sure. Let me, let me see if I have my little elevator pitch in memory. <laughs> um, so finding God abiding, it contains four weeks of daily meditations based on true stories. 
Uh, it is a companion volume to my first book, Finding God in Ordinary Time, that came out in 2018. Uh, the first book looked at four terrains, I said, where we can experience the presence of God in everyday life. And this one focuses on what I call four movements within a person that we go through over and over again in our life, which I have identified as perceiving, becoming, embracing, and releasing. And we can dig into that more whenever you want. Yeah, definitely. So this is a, I don't want to use the word sequel because it, you didn't make it sound like it needed to uh, read one to the other, but how are the two connected? They, it's definitely not a sequel. I use companion volume because um, you could read them in either order, uh, but they base, they definitely follow, they look very similar. I, they both have beautiful covers. And I asked Asha Hossein, my cover designer, when it came time to do the second one, I said, okay, we're going to need something that's, that's just like the first one, only different. <laughs> and uh, she, she rose to that challenge. Um, but they, they follow the same structure of four weeks, four themes, seven, you know, seven chapters within each, within each week. Um, they, each chapter begins with a scripture quote, then tells us true story and uses to lessons learned questions, you know, questions for personal, ref blah, I'm going to start that again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Each chapter starts with a scripture quote and then tells a true story and then spends a little time musing on lessons learned and ends with some questions for personal reflection. And that, that format is the same across both books. I like that format. That's very uh, like reader engaged. It's not just so much like, you know, so many books like that have, you know, it, it, comes off as preaching because there's no opportunity to reflect and kind of like do your own thinking at the end of it. That's right. interesting. Where did exactly. you, is that something you came up with from practice or did you well, editor recommend that? How, where did that come in? Well, there's, there's a story there actually. Um, so I worked my life before I was doing this freelance existence. I worked as a campus minister in Catholic higher education for 26 years mm. and so, so I've been to a lot of daily masses and um, which generally are shorter and have a briefer sermon, a homily than, than a Sunday mass. And many years ago for about a decade, I worked with a priest who had a very collaborative style and especially a very collaborative preaching style. So most days we would both read the readings of the day, uh, you know, kind of the assigned reading in the Catholic tradition. And in the morning, you know, at home separately. And then when mass time was approaching, we would go in his office and we would close the door and, and say, okay, what'd you get? You know, and we'd start to talk about the readings and, and what stories, you know, from real life might go with them and what kind of message it would be good for him to convey. In the Catholic tradition, the priest is always the preacher at a, at a you know, Eucharistic liturgy. So mm -hmm. I was gonna, never gonna be the one doing the speaking but I got to say probably 60, 70% of the time, it was my ideas making it out. Um, and though there are, there are some problematic things to that, the experience of almost the impromptu homily prep um, really helped me start thinking on my feet about how to sort of pull the spiritual message out of a piece of scripture using something very relatable from real life. 
So really any of these chapters could be a little daily mass homily, but that could be our little secret. <laughs> very interesting. You, were, you used the word collaboration and I think that's an important piece, um, especially with something like this, where it's not just, you know, you're not just writing to entertain somebody. It's more to engage them on that spiritual level, right? Mm-hmm. On, on the, mm-hmm. from the inside out almost. Um, I, I wanted to ask, I know you said the two books are connected, but not necessarily like in order or anything like that. But the first one was pre-COVID. The second one was post-COVID. Hmm. Did that affect any of it at all, whether it be content, layout, design, um, anything in there? I mean, because the, the reason I ask this is because so much of our our modern lives now, especially in the spiritual realm, have adjusted a lot of people have found themselves in different platforms and plateaus pre-covid as opposed to Mm post-covid so i was i was curious if the book books had anything in that not necessarily with like you know having to do with covid but as far as that aspect of it of that 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 soul work that deep search inside of us did, did that affect anything from book one to book two you know, not that I am not that I am super conscious of. I I feel like I somebody who was one of my you know early readers for you know a reviewer for this second book said that she thought I was what did she say I was edgier or riskier with the second book that I you know I I took a, more chances in terms of things I talked about and stories I told. I don't know if that's just a product of it being my second book and my having a little more, you know, bravado um, mm. or confidence, uh, or if that came out of the need to be quite real because of the pandemic. I, I will say one of the things I struggled with, and I didn't, I didn't think of this in terms of the pandemic, but you might be onto something. Um, there's sort of no lack of stories to tell, you know, and part of why I wrote the second book in the same format was, okay, so we've gotten 28 stories out there. I'm sure there's another 28 in me, Um, you know, after 26 years in campus ministry and several more years in in other sorts of ministry. Um, But what became harder as I was writing this in the pandemic was landing the thing without sounding preachy Mm. because I I really don't want to. I mean, I want to give a person something to think about. I'd like to share a little pearl of wisdom, but anything that attempts to sort of tie a neat little bow on the lesson, um, I I really dislike. And, And so I, I can even picture where I was when I was taking pass after pass after pass at the ending of one of these chapters. And I finally had to give up. And I think I came back to it several months later and finally figured out a way to land it, you know, gently and appropriately without feeling like I was, you know, wagging a finger at somebody, you know, or in, in any way, I don't know. I just, I don't like platitudes. Um, you know, so I, I really, I struggled to really be sure I was staying away from the pat ending. 
and maybe that that is a, uh, a you know the hanging out in pandemic and being with people struggling with all kinds of profound issues in the midst of it that might have contributed to that yeah i i feel like um a lot of artists kind of went through that regardless of their content they went through that same process or that same struggle of trying to figure out how to how to engage their audience in that way without without sounding preachy you know without sounding like you're trying to like you said wag the finger but at the same time like leave that you know the nugget the the, the pearl the thing that they, they really want them to walk away with um is that kind of where you mentioned the 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 several pillars in there is that kind of where those came from or were the pillars more structures and foundations to launch the book i think that, that was more structure um because i love structure um <laughs> and I, I i i knew i wanted to be able to theme the book out some, you know, an organizing principle, let's call it. And right. so I, I, I started in both cases, um, but I remember this one better. I started by just started with the stories, you know, and uh, the stories and the chapters. And after I was maybe nine or 10 chapters in, I started thinking about how they might clump together and what some common themes and threads were. And and kept playing around with, you know, what they, how they might be organized, which then helped me as I continued to write chapters, it helped me slot them into, you know, the four different sections, um, you know, and then to say, okay, like you, you definitely need a several more on this topic. And they're a little bit fluid. I mean, they, one could be considered one or the other. So I did a little shifting around, but, uh, yeah, and they they made for an organizing principle. I see. Did they cross over from book one to two? The so the one thing that I think. Let me see. So first book, I, the four terrains were the wonders of the created world, surprising encounters with strangers, disorienting experiences of travel and poignant moments of life transition. So that's mm -hmm. the that's the four in the first book. In the second book, I talk about awakening to the world around us, discovering and rediscovering our call, grieving the loss of much that we hold dear, um, and practicing love in its many forms. And I just switched three and four there. Um, mm. So like, Really practicing love in its many forms and surprising encounters with strangers. There are some parallels there, um, but also the poignant moments of life transition and the grieving the loss of much that we hold dear. I mean, change is loss, even good change is loss. Uh, and I do, I, I write a lot about grief and loss in general, and, and those themes make it into both books. In, okay, here's a funny story. In, as my first book was getting ready to come out, somebody gave me a heads up that for reasons that I do not understand, Amazon had just ranked my book, which had not yet come out, like one of the top 10 new books in religious humor. Wow. <laughs> <It's> like what? <laughs> like that, that, 
that is not a category with which I am familiar. <laughs> and, um, and what I said to people is there are four mothers with cancer in this book, like four different mothers with cancer. Yeah, like, right. How is this humor? <laughs> yeah. If anybody's hoping for a book of Jesus, not, not jokes, like you're going to get your money back. Like, I'm so sorry. Um, so mothers with cancer showed up a lot in my last book. Uh, several people with Alzheimer's in this book um, for, you know, one reason or another. Um, so that is, you know, however I am working my way around that theme of, of, uh, of grief and loss, that will come up a lot in both books. And, and in general, the thing that connects them both, um, the, the, so the similarity, the parallel in the title, they both begin with Finding God, which is a shout out to St. Ignatius of Loyola and my Jesuit background, um, St. Ignatius taught us that we can find God in all things. And that's one of those real, like anybody who's hung out in the Jesuit world at all, that's, that's just a phrase we all know, finding God in all things. And so one of the themes that connects them both is how, how we need to pay attention. You know, how if we can just train our eyes and our ears and our hearts to notice things, a lot of richness will be revealed and a lot of God's, you know, action in the world and in our lives will be revealed if we can manage to pay attention. So pay attention would be another one of my overarching themes. Mm. I want to dig into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in your life, where, and it feel again, feel free, however deep you're willing to go, however you're comfortable with in your life, that theme of paying attention. I mean, when did that kind of, quote unquote, you know, hit you in the face, <laughs> kind of make you realize like there, this needs to be expanded upon in, you know, in book form. Oh, in so specifically in book form. Yeah. Like what, I mean, you know, that's, that's something that's come up on the podcast in many different multitudes, mm. you know, um, whether that be paying attention to, you know, your emotions or paying attention to your art or to your audience, you know, but, I guess what I'm asking is how, how did that kind of come to fruition for you in a sense where like, I need, I need to make this thing, this, I need to write this book and write mm. about it and make it one of those themes. Right. Well, I mean, I would say that the, the call to pay attention, like that's just in my professional spa- slash spiritual background Um, like one of the things I did before my campus ministry job, I trained for a year as a hospital chaplain and in a program called clinical pastoral education. And so one of the things that we do in CPE is we, we write verbatims, like we'll have an encounter with a patient or a family member, and then we'll have to go home and type it up like as verbatim as we can recall. And Mm. then sort of pick it apart for, you know, what were the, what were the cultural factors at work and what were the, you know, religious and denominational factors and how did gender play in and how did race play in and, you know, what was I feeling when the patient said that and, you know, what was going on in me that made me respond that way? So like a year of really picking apart my own ability to pay attention and, and responsiveness, you know, that's part of my really early training. Right. And then again, this, you know, 
the impromptu homily work, the, you know, the just being in a spiritual counseling role with students, helping them notice, 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 you know, what was going on, um, being a recipient of spiritual direction myself, the invitation to notice is huge. Um, so, but the book itself, uh, I had a friend who was the acquisitions editor for a Catholic press who, when he got his job said, you know, Hey, we, you know, we, we run this magazine, uh, you know, got a magazine article in you and said, oh, you know, sure. And I pitched four articles over the course of a few years and they, they got accepted. And so my friend then turned around and was like, okay, we also publish books. I'm sure you have a book in you. What is it? <laughs> I mean, literally that was the question. I'm sure you have a book in you. What is it? And, and I said, well, give me the weekend. And I, you know, spent the weekend thinking and praying about this and wound up pitching to him pretty much what this book became, what the first book became. I used one of the stories that, that really is in the first book about my little goddaughter jumping waves at the Jersey shore when she was five. Um, I had the idea about the the scripture quote and the questions for reflection. I thought there might be some sort of photograph or illustration to accompany each one, but that's before I understood how expensive that gets when you're working in actual oh, paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we let that idea go. Um, but he, he loved the idea and I started to run with it. And I was several reflections in when um, my friend for one reason or another lost his job downsizing. I don't know. Uh, and although he passed the project off to someone, I was not terribly excited about working for that particular company anymore. And, uh, and the person to whom he had passed off the project said, I, I love everything you've sent me, but I have no idea how to market this thing. And I thought, well, all right, if a Catholic press has no idea how to market this thing, okay, and into the drawer, the metaphorical drawer, this goes. <laughs> right. Um, and ironically, it wound up getting published by a secular press many years later, thanks to um, my time at When Words Count, which is a writer's retreat up in Vermont, uh, which, is a, which is a long story. So I'll, I'll tell it if you want, or I'll tell it later, but- um, the, Up to you. <laughs> well, there was a, um, all right. The semi-short version is that I stumbled on a Facebook sweepstakes to spend four nights at a writer's retreat in Vermont in February of 2017. And, and, you know, what the heck? And I entered and won, which I suspect many people did. Um, but so here I was, I was going off to Vermont to, to have the incredible luxury of socking myself away and writing for four days and having someone else feed me and I <laughs> exquisite food, by the way. Um, but I, th I thought, well, there's that book that I was trying to, to do nine years ago. Um, and I remembered, you know, I pulled out the feedback and, and, you know, no idea how to market this thing. And I thought, okay, it's supposed to be four weeks. You know what else is four weeks? The liturgical season of Advent. And every Catholic person likes a nice little Advent resource. So I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not so far into this that I can't find a way to pivot and make it be a nice four week Advent devotional. And so I, you know, I brought a ton of, you know, I brought my lectionary with me and all these, you know, <laughs> religious books and, you know, all right. the readings. Okay. 
And, um, but one of the things that happens at When Words Count is that in the evenings, we gather around the fireplace with whatever writers happen to be there and start reading excerpts of, of our work for you know, critique and feedback. And this was not a religious retreat, but as it happened, the people gathered were all coming from different religious traditions. Uh, there was a Quaker, there was a Hindu father and daughter, there was sort of an evangelical Christian and a former Catholic and a person who described himself as an agnostic Jew. <laughs> um, and when I read my, the first chapter that I wanted to share with them, I had given them that whole preamble that I just gave you. And they, they're like, Advent resource, really? We're not really seeing that. And I said, well, all right, can I, can I read you another chapter? And said, sure, sure, sure. So I, I read a, a slightly riskier chapter. And, uh, and they were like, nope, nope, absolutely not, not an Advent resource. At which point I got a little, my back got up a little bit. I was like, what do you people know about Advent? Why, what, tell, me, <laughs> of course, why, right. tell me why you are saying this. And <laughs> what they said was, if this is an Advent resource, it's going to live in little Catholic bookstores where people like us will never be able to find it. And we want people like us to be able to read it. Oh, well, now there's a point. And, and so I really, I, I gave it a good long think about you know, who really, who really was my audience um, mm. and, and wound up deciding that I, that I wanted my audience to be everybody um, or anybody who a, a spiritually questing person um, mm -hmm. in point of fact, my real sweet spot of readers is, church going Catholic women over 40. Okay. So <laughs> people like me, um, but the, it also, those women really like to gift it to their spiritual, not religious um, grandkids or their, I don't go to church anymore in-laws. Right. Um, you know, so it, it, it finds a home with, with people who don't really identify as churchy people. Um, you know, I think because I have made that decision made a decision not to assume that everybody knows what I know or believes what I believe, uh, you know, but to sort of write in a way that gets at, gets at the heart of things. Right. Oh, and, and your question was, or how I started this was the secular publisher. I did not know when I first went up there that when words count has a juried writing competition called pitch week. And even when it was explained to me and someone said, is this a thing you would like to do? I was like, no, I mean, come on, I'm writing this little God book. <laughs> what would I do in pitch week? But in point of fact, I was explicitly invited to be in pitch week and uh, did not win. But one of the judges was Dee Dee Cummings who ran, runs Green Writers Press. Mm. And she wanted to publish my book anyway. And so that's how I wound up being published by Green Writers Press and now for this book by Woodhall Press, who is When Words Count's new publisher of record. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting path, uh, you know, being a Catholic writer, writing religious books that are finding their home through secular presses. It's very interesting to how, like the, you know, it kind of just like the universe aligned to the point where kind of realized what that larger audience was mm -hmm. even though you didn't really have the idea in mind i kind of want to switch gears and kind of run with that a little bit talk sure. talk about the writing process um 
I mean, first of all, you, you've already kind of demonstrated and talked a little bit about how much a writing retreat can help. Mm. Yes. How, I mean, was that your first one or have you experienced retreats prior to that, after that? I, I know you facilitate retreats at this point too, which might look slightly different, but I mean, can you talk to the act of what a retreat is and what it does for somebody who's trying to write something? Well, I think so. The, the, we're using the words in two different contexts because a, yes. a writer's retreat it would be very different from a religious retreat. Yes. Um, so I'll talk about the writer's retreat first or second. Which uh, that's your... a few. Whichever one you think makes more sense. I mean, uh, my I'm thinking I you know because yes they're different but they have similar qualities uh, and, and things that line up. And I'm just curious to see if uh, being that you have experience in both sides of that, mm. like if you notice how the two things kind of help shape you as an artist, as a writer, but then also, you know, as a human being. Okay. Gotcha. And that is, that is very interesting. And that is the thing I have not thought about before. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that connects them is the, the coming apart, you know, the stepping out of, everyday life with all its busyness and distractions and requirements, um, it sort of lets your head, your mind, your spirit go to a deeper place. It, it gives you permission, it gives you the luxury to think more deeply and broadly. And so in, in that respect, I think the two are very similar. Uh, mm. I mean, the ability up at when words count to just curl up and write for hours, knowing that, you know, at some point a little bell was going to ring and there would be a lovely lunch on the table, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that as soon as it would was over, I could go right back to writing. Um, you know, that, that was incredible. Um, but I didn't just sit on the couch writing. I would also, you know, strap on the sneakers and go for a long walk in the rolling hills of Vermont uh, in various temperatures and kinds of weather. And, you know, that is a thing that I also love to do on retreat to go for to go for long walks or to or to sit outside um, the retreat center where I went for many, many years had this wonderful cloister walk where you could, you know, I had my favorite rocking chair <laughs> Uh, you know, that I would pull up to my favorite overlook, be it, you know, looking out to the hills or turned inward and looking at the garden. Um, so just the ability to, to, be, to be in silence or at least quiet mm. and to behold whatever, you know, to, to behold the, the beauty of nature or the canvas of our own life, uh, you know, with the unpluggedness, that's not a word, but, you know, <laughs> but, but not being plugged into all the things that yammer for our attention on a daily basis in, in both settings, I think really allows us to go deeper. Um, you know, knowing that we'll have no, okay. So if you've ever been to therapy, you know, that like the therapist has a, a good eye on the clock and is never going to make you burst into tears about something 90 seconds before the end of a session. 
<laughs> right. You know, like there's a time in the session where that happens. And then we are going to stitch it back together and we are going to make it be so you can walk out this door <laughs> into whatever you need to do next. <laughs> um, right. The, the, the retreat and the, I keep using the word luxury, you know, but, but the luxury of time to fall into something, um, you know, if it's, if it's on a religious retreat, something that you're thinking about or praying about or struggling with, um, you know, the ability to pray with something in the morning and go back to it in the evening or the next day, uh, you know, the, that repetition can be very helpful and instructive, uh, you know, and same with, with the writing to, on a writer's retreat, not to feel like you're writing to deadline, um, you know, but you're really just giving yourself the time and the space and the, the breathing room to create. That element of solitude, I mean, it, I feel like it affects all of us differently, number one, but it does wonders this day and age. I mean, you m mentioned like separating yourself from, you know, the, the pings and notifications of what daily life is now and i feel like there's so much benefit in in honing that ability whether or not you're able to afford the luxury like you said of retreating to a, a, a space where you're removed from all of that stuff but the ability to kind of hone that solitude and use it in a multitude of ways is so beneficial mm -hmm. how how do you harness something like that especially if you i mean I imagine your first one was different than the last few that you've done. Like, how do you hone something as a beginner who doesn't really understand that to somebody who's quote unquote a master of it, who's had experience in, in demonstrating and using that solitude to produce something, whether it be physical or not. Right. I mean, I think, I think we practice in, we practice in small bites. I mean, I can remember my first silent retreat in college I was a junior. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a three night retreat. I had never had the experience of retreating in silence before. And, and part of what was hard about that for me is that I knew everybody else on the retreat. And, you know, I just, I wanted to know what was going on with them. Oh, it looks like she, it looks like she teared up about something. It looks like he's really deep in thought. I wonder what's going on. So part of it was just, you know, that curiosity and that desire to share. And part of it mm. was, I just, this is not something I had practiced. Um, and, and it is a practice. So by uh, the final night or afternoon of that retreat, um, the priest who was running it actually sent two of us out to the playground. And he was like, okay, go play on the swings, get your yayas out and then come back. Um, you know, so we, we practice in small pieces. Um, you know, you don't have to go for a week long silent retreat. Um, you know, you can, you can take 10 minutes, you can take an hour. Um, you know, and I know that it is, it is less and less common. And so I know, so as a campus minister, when I would be doing uh, the kind of retreats we do would have a lot more content and a lot more talking and sharing and all of that. But the introverts, like they need a minute, you know, yeah. I'm an introvert. I need a minute. Uh, you know, the first thing to fly out of your mouth is not necessarily the best thing. And so um, I would often say when I'd be planning with a group of students, 
you know, okay, so we're going to do this. And then I want to give people a little time, you know, to, to go off on their own, you know, how much time do you think would be good? And I'd, I'd often be trying to decide between like 30 minutes and an hour. And invariably the students would be like, well, you know, five, five minutes, maybe 10, but mm, 10 might be, 10 might be a lot. (laughs) So baby steps, you start at the beginning. I think it's important too. That's, you know, starting at the beginning is, it's a lot easier said than done, but at the same time, it's arguably the most important step. Cause like, how are you going to get to the end? How are you going to become a master if you don't start right. and embrace those struggles? Yeah. I know like for me, the solitude piece is, is huge for a variety of things. I mean, not just writing. I mean, of course, writing is such a solitary act, but I mean, even, even just to like find peace of mind after a long day, like I'm, I'm a public school teacher, right? So like it's, <laughs> chaos on end up until the moment the bell rings the end of the day. It's like, you don't get a chance to sit down. And, you know, there are days where like, I can't afford the luxury of coming home to like sit down and, you know, okay, I'm going to sit and just catch my breath for 10 minutes because I can't, like I have, you know, I got chores to do. I got to X, Y, and Z. I got to make dinner, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, what do you suggest for somebody who's having trouble trying to find that time to carve out of, you know, the, I, I want to call it me time because that's essentially that's kind of what it is. You're trying to hone yourself. But that solitude time that is so essential this day and age. Wh- what advice can you give someone who's really struggling to find that those 10 minutes, those 15 minutes, those five minutes, whatever it is in their day to day lives? Right. Well, OK, I'm going to give you a, a flip answer and then a serious answer. My flip answer is get a dog. <laughs> because <laughs> you've got to walk the dog. You know, get a dog, especially if you don't have a fenced in backyard, because you're going to have to get up in the morning and walk out your door with that animal. And Mm. you're going to have to go for a walk and you're going to get home from work and you're going to have to go for another walk. (laughs) Now, whether or not you pop in your headphones and talk to somebody or listen to a podcast or your music, like that's then going to be up to you. Um, But, you know, so the, the dog gives you the discipline, but, um, since that's not a practical answer for everybody. Um, you know, I think prioritizing yourself, which we're sometimes not very good at. I, I remember um, many, many, many years ago, I think before, before I was a campus minister, maybe even, or maybe in my first year, um, I was supporting a, a Jesuit volunteer core community, JVC, I don't know if you're familiar with it. There are groups of young people in cities across the country who commit to a year of volunteer service and who live in community with one another, practicing simple living in community and prayer and social justice. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had a a fall retreat, uh, you know, weekend long retreat and invited the support people to come along with the community members. So uh, there's this young priest and I, and we're supporting these six wonderful, you know, early twenties people. And we played, one of the activities they had us do was this activity called I Did Not Know That, that I think might have been based on a David Letterman thing. I don't even know, but they, I, I, do, I did not know that. And, it, you know, long list of questions that we would go through and everybody would answer the question. And, you know, we would notice like what, what surprised me that you said or, you know. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions was, if you could start your day any way you wanted how would you start your day? Like your average day. Mm. And 
the young people, I say young people, I was probably six years older than them at the time, but it felt like a gap. Um, <laughs> the young, younger people, um, they were all like, I would want to wake up, you know, snuggling with someone I loved. You know, I would, I would like someone to bring me breakfast in bed. I mean, all these, you know, I'd like to be looking out over my, you know, the grounds of my mansion in Hawaii, like you know, <laughs> all these things. And both the young priest and I said, like, I'd really like to wake up and have like an hour in my rocking chair with a cup of coffee and some good prayer time. And what I realized was for all those younger people, those things that they wanted were total pipe dreams that might or might not happen. And the thing I said I wanted was a thing I could decide to do. And so why was I not deciding to do it? Um, you know, so that might mean getting up a little earlier, or it might mean noticing what are the things that draw my attention at certain times of day that really don't need to, you know, I, mm. today was my 101st Wordle game. Congrats. Thank you. I'm on a 101 <laughs> game winning streak too. Now that I've said this to you, I'm probably going to tank tomorrow, but knock on um, wood. Yes. But, <laughs> and I, and I love playing Wordle in the morning. I'm part of a little community of, of family and friends who, you know, send each other our scores every morning and have a little, little fun around that. I don't have to do it first. You know, that's a choice. Reading the New York times news summary in my email is a choice. Flipping open my laptop or phone in the first place is a choice. Mm -hmm. um, but so is just sitting in my rocking chair for a couple of minutes and drinking that cup of coffee, listening to something inspirational, reading something inspirational, you know, or just, just sitting and, and praying for a few minutes. Um, I, I can decide to do that, but I, I have to, I can't, I mean, I can't every day. Sometimes the day takes off without me, you know? But um, right. as it does, I'm sure for you, but valuing it enough to carve out the time, I think is how we have to start. And, and also not putting, not putting some sort of huge expectation on what that time is going to be like. I remember mm. hearing somebody talking about centering prayer where the thing where you like focus on your breath, you know, and you pay attention to your in-breaths and your out-breaths. And if a thought comes into your mind, you, you dismiss that thought and, you know, you draw your attention back to your breath or your centering word. And for me, as I presume for most people trying to do that, the thoughts come galloping in, you know, I'm, I'm paying attention right. to my breath and I discover that I'm halfway through making my shopping list in my mind <laughs> and you know, pull my attention back. And, and somebody said, what you have to realize is that that gentle action of drawing yourself back, that is the practice. Yes. You are practicing and that is the practice. And that very practice, that act of practicing is going to bear fruit. And sure enough, uh, there was a time when, uh, when that was what I was really trying to do in the mornings. And within, I would say, eight to 10 days of starting that, I was in the shower and noticed myself going down a 
a just total rabbit hole thought process regarding someone I was upset with. And I realized I didn't have to think about that in the shower. <laughs> I could choose to think about something else. And I really credited my ability to pump the brakes on that toxic train of thought to eight or 10 days of practicing drawing my attention back. It's so interesting how seemingly little it takes in order to adjust that subconscious piece of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like a big piece of it, like you said, is, is finding the value and recognizing the spaces in which you can adjust. I mean, that's like arguably the first step, but then that second step of being gentle with yourself and correcting yourself, um, recognizing like when you are kind of drifting thought like that. I feel mm -hmm. like that's, I mean, that's, that's so difficult to do this day and age. Like you said, with the constant, <laughs> the errands, the to-do list, the pings, you know, your phone, your laptop, whatever it is, a book, right? All of those things, as, while they have value in the moment where you're trying to reflect and you're trying to find that, that solitude, that, that inner searching, it takes a little bit of gentle guidance to get back to that to the point where like you said eight to ten days later two weeks later you start to recognize when your brain is doing that automatically mm -hmm. and you can kind of re readjust right. and it's interesting because it's like it i mean in my mind it it solidifies the whole neuroplasticity of our brains and like how we can learn to adjust and and, and teach our subconscious in the same way that we teach our conscious it just takes a little more effort. <laughs> yes, yes. I, there's a chapter in my new book called Finding God in a Fire Siren, where I talk about the fact that we indeed live, you know, right across the train tracks from a local volunteer fire company. And that siren goes off several times a day, usually. And it is, especially in the nice weather when the windows are open, it is, it is ear splitting. Mm. Um, and someone in the neighborhood was trying to lobby to silence the siren because he said you know everybody has pagers now what do, what do we need this for um and i couldn't he asked if i would join him at a town hall meeting to help make his case and and i couldn't do it and i said to him you know my mother always taught me and people love it when you start sentences that way <laughs> my mother always taught me that when i hear a siren it means someone is in trouble and someone is going to help and since neither of those people is me the least i can do is stop and pray for them uh and, and I, I mean, that's been true. My, my mother really did teach me that. And so I think there's a lot of people who stop and shoot off a quick prayer when they hear a siren. However, I can shoot off a quick prayer without breaking my stride. I can shoot off a quick, quick prayer without stopping, even for an instant, the typing of the email that I'm writing. So yeah. as I, especially once I wrote this chapter, what I really have been doing is, is try to actually stop. Um, which is another great sort of beginner way of um, the neuroplasticity, same thing that you talked about, of training your, your mind and your spirit, um, you know, to when I hear the siren, like actually stop and be mindful that someone is in trouble and someone is going to help and pray for those people. It's, you know, it's for the length of the siren, which is not very long. Right. Um, but I, I've been trying to identify other things to do that with. Like we've got, we've got a morning dove in the neighborhood or, or, or more than one, I suppose. 
And there's that line in Matthew's gospel in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So I'm, I'm trying to pray that scripture verse when I hear that morning dove. Mm. And if possible, if I can slow myself down enough, actually call to mind somebody I know who's mourning and pray for that person. Or maybe even, you know, call that person or text that person or check in with them somehow later that day. I'm not perfect at that, but that's a direction I'm trying to move. We also have woodpeckers or a woodpecker. Oof. And when I know, and when I hear that sound, I, I have been trying to call to mind people with hard jobs um, and just sort of think of a category of person with a hard job or an individual with a hard job and at the very least pray for them or possibly reach out to them. So there's all kinds of ways. I mean, people do it with cardinals. They do it with rainbows. Um, I, uh, I was talking to, um, I was talking to a Jewish woman the other day who said that they have a special prayer I wish I remembered what this was called in Hebrew, but she said they have a special prayer for the first time something happens in a given block of time. So it could be the first time you see a daffodil in spring or the first time you do something, you know, in the course of a week or a year. But, but like over and over and over again, they say that prayer because they're noticing all these firsts, like special, like big special things, but also really ordinary little things. You know, the first leaves that fall in autumn, uh, the first snowflake, um, you know, the first day you wake up without a migraine after a <laughs> really bad week, um, you know, to be able to, to say that prayer of blessing and give thanks for that new beginning. Beautiful. Um, but that kind of practice only exists because there's a prayer that, you know, an ancient prayer that people are very intentionally trying to incorporate into their days. So the structure helps. And I think there's lots of, there's lots of opportunities to find those things too. I mean, like I'm, my brain is immediately going to my quote unquote writing timer. I always, you know, when I'm doing mm. laundry, I set the dryer when the dryer goes off, I stop writing and then, go check on laundry, vice versa. <laughs> but you can do the same kind of thing with what you're saying, right? Like taking that moment to, to practice that mindfulness, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. like heating something up in the microwave, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like those little moments, if you train yourself and your, your, your mind to kind of redirect the thoughts away from the, um, what's the right word here? I guess, the selfishness and redirect it more towards the selflessness. I feel like that becomes a, a groove almost in your day-to-day -day life to the point where you start to recognize, like you, like you said, with your, your friend mentioning here, recognizing all of these firsts, you know, that, that kind of stemmed out of that practice. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things you can tie that to whether mm -hmm. or not that's, you know, I, I just use writing cause that's kind of where my brain went, but you know, it could be, in any regard, in any context, um, how does that, does that affect your, your teaching at all? I mean, I know, cause you, again, you, you facilitate these retreats and you, you are a spiritual teacher. Like, do you, does that, that mindset, does that kind of aid 
is that one of the goals that you try to teach about or is that like a product that you kind of recognize comes with it? So that mindset of noticing or? Yeah. Well, I guess both. I mean, more so the, the noticing, but I guess, I guess also maybe the selflessness that comes mm. with it. I, I think so. Um, you know, helping people, helping people be more conscious you know, um, is, is part of my mission. I, uh, back when I was working in student life, we used to do this activity where we would invite people to come up with their six word mission statement, which was mm. a, you know, a fun thing to, to get college students to do. But for myself, I, I took a, a, a line from the old Baltimore catechism and, and adapted it. And I said that my personal mission was, um, help others know, love, serve God. So whatever, whatever helps, uh, you know, whatever helps them know God, know themselves, uh, love God, love the people around them, love themselves, be of service, um, you know, anything that helps people integrate their spirituality with their very everyday life, um, is really important to me in my work. Um, and there was something else, uh, something you said, jog something into my brain. Oh, just about the, um, the training our brains and the practicing. So for Lent this year, one of the things that I was trying desperately to do with only limited success was not to default to looking at my phone every time I had a nanosecond of downtime, mm. you know, and I mean, it's, it's such an ingrained habit for so many of us, I think right now, you know, yeah. I'm in the, you know, I am waiting for the microwave. Is there a game I can play on my phone for this two minutes? Because <laughs> God forbid, I just look out the kitchen door for two minutes, you know, or right. I'm in the passenger seat. So you know, let me find an article that I can read aloud to you versus let's just watch the world go by. You know? <laughs> um, and so really, and, you know, Lent is over now and I'm, I'm still really pretty committed to trying to work on this, um, you know, just so that to have a little more mental space, I think is going to be helpful. I agree. I think that's uh, tremendously important in this day and age is everything and everyone is trying <laughs> to take your mental space from you and make it theirs. And it's like, you yes, have to have right. that ability. You got to have that ability to like, you know, defend your zone, <laughs> kind of right, keep right. it like, this is my mental space. I'm going to use it for me, you know? And that's, I know that's way easier said than done, but I think that's part of what is keeping many of us sane in an insane insane time and vice versa it's also causing people to go insane in a wild time mm -hmm. you know and i mm -hmm. think that's that can be applied again across many different contexts however that depends on listeners lives but it's important to recognize that we have that ability and we yeah. can hone it and we come we can become better at it yeah you know you sense. mentioned a while back you mentioned the um the need for solitude and i was thinking we all need solitude and community. Yeah. And 
for most people, the pandemic robbed them of one or the other. Yeah. And I think that's something we're all struggling back from. Yeah. And yeah. I know like as a, as a teacher, I see that in, in students and the youth who like, they don't, I, sh- I don't want to generalize because there are some that recognize, but many lack the verbiage to even express that notion, right? Like it's very difficult for somebody who was never taught how to do those things or how to manage those things. Now it's hitting them in a way that they're unused to. And now they can't even express like, or identify what's creating those anxieties or those stressors in life, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's one of those things like the, we, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to be 18 to learn to wait how to do those things. Those are things you can, you can adapt with your children from a young age. You know, mm-hmm. of course you want to make it age appropriate, but that's a skill set that is innately human. If that right. makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this sounds like a good spot. I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, do you want to s- swap over, switch gears to the quote unquote rapid fire questions? Sure. So as I mentioned before you're we recording, I call them rapid fire, but your <laughs> answers do not need to be rapid <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Take your time. Okay. Um, okay. So first question here is what's, uh, what are you currently reading? What are you consuming right now that is trying to better yourself? And would you recommend it? So, um, <laughs> so I will say, Parentheses. One thing I'm almost constantly consuming is Anne Patchett's marvelous novel, The Dutch House, mm. which I read and then got the audiobook of, and it is narrated by Tom Hanks, who does a fantastic job. So oh, that's man, sort of on. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> so that's kind of on constant loop in my headphones, uh, falling asleep at night. Sometimes. Perfect narrator voice for that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but the the what I am currently reading for for real is um, oh, this is going to sound dorky, but Pope Francis wrote a book near the beginning of the pandemic called Let Us Dream that I have been reading with a group of people over the course of nine months. It's, it is not that long. So we're just reading it a tiny bit at a time. Mm. Um, but he, he writes about <sighs> hoping that the pandemic can serve as a wake-up call about all the ways the world really wasn't that good to start with. Um, you know, mm. that, that when we see, I mean, we all saw during the pandemic, the, um, the huge rifts between people who pretty much had it just fine. Like people like me who could just stay home and quietly write my book and go for walks in my neighborhood versus people who were, you know, first responders and on the front lines of things who were just going through hell versus people who were suddenly out of a job and losing their savings. Um, You know, so just as an example, the fact that waitresses and and waiters make, what is it, two thirty an hour or, you know, something like that, something like that, like that, that our economy and he's writing from a world perspective, but the fact that the economy is structured in such a way that so many people are in appalling and inescapable poverty. Um, could, we, could we reset the market differently? He talks about you know, how women are regarded culturally. Could we reset how women are regarded? He talks about what he calls the virus of polarization 
And, you know, mm. certainly we see it in this country right now, but we are not alone. Um, can, how can we learn to talk to each other and encounter one another across those lines of polarization? Um, so he really, he, he just, you know, he, he writes with his finger really well on the pulse of a lot of what is the deep-seated wrong with society and with the way our economy is structured and really um, invites us to go about things differently. They're huge questions. Um, I am almost done the book. I think I'm about to start the epilogue and, and, and I, my big question is, but how, <laughs> what can I do? Right. Um, you know, but it is, it is, it is a short, but very inspiring read, um, you know, that, that takes into account a lot of people that it's easy to not think about from day to day to day right i am definitely gonna have to check that out let us dream let us dream that sounds right up my alley good good um cool okay um and second question here what's one meal that you like to prepare and cook like a go-to whether it's for yourself or friends and family um but favorite dish well my 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 let us impress people dish was risotto which mm. i loved to make i love the you know the 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 standing and the stirring and the the constant care and attention that risotto takes when my father was alive it would be my go-to dish to make when he came over because my dad was a real talker and <laughs> and like i could stand and stir that thing for like a solid hour <laughs> while right. dad told stories and i had something to do with my hands um what I have discovered in the last six months is that you can make a spectacular risotto in the instant pot, which sounds impossible and absurd, mm. but you actually can do it. And so that's how I do it now. I make a really nice like, lime risotto in the instant pot. How does it work in the instant pot? I that's... don't know. <laughs> so strange. I, I mean, I guess the, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I get, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even going to take a stab at that, but it does. That's all I'll tell you is it does. Interesting. I'm going to have to do some, uh, some homework. Yeah. After this. <laughs> I'll shoot you over a recipe. <laughs> yes, please, please. Um, okay, cool. That sounds delicious. Um, and then the third final question here is what's one betterism life lesson that you want listeners to walk away with today? Um, something you think that they're going to find value with, uh, they can apply it to their life. It could come from our conversation or it could be something you just normally live life by. Well, I, I think this is both of those things, what I want to say, and it's this. Success teaches us almost nothing. Mm. How do we learn? We learn from failure. We learn from that practice of drawing our attention back over and over and over again. We learn from messing up and trying again. Um, and that is what I am in, in many chapters of my book, I think, trying to convey. How do, we, how do we learn to be forgiving people? We learn by being forgiven. You know, we learn by having to forgive. How do we learn patience? We learn patience from having to wait. <laughs> um, you know, like when we just, the things that we fly out of the gate good at, um, really not a lot of learning there. It's, it's just accomplishment. Um, I just spent all of Lent giving retreats 
in which I encourage us to allow life to become its own Lenten discipline and say like the goal isn't victory, you know, a Lent in which we sort of spike the football on Easter Sunday, having perfectly executed our three point Lenten plan. <laughs> We've not grown closer to God by doing that. We haven't learned anything by doing that. We just feel self-righteous. <laughs> and that right. is not, that is not the goal of the spiritual life. <laughs> so success teaches us almost nothing. There's my betterism for you. I love that. That needs to be on a billboard on several <laughs> billboards. I feel like that, you know, and that's, I hate to say this, but it, it seems like that's, the predominant attitude now is like, I, you know, I don't want to fail or I don't mm-hmm. want to try because I don't want to fail. And I think it's important to recognize that, like you, like you said, like in order to learn things, we need, we need to fail, right. whether that's a big failure or a small failure, you know, you, you need to fail. And sometimes like five, six, seven, eight times before you actually pick it up. Right. I mean, I think, you know, young Yo-Yo Ma, I'm guessing when he first picked up that cello and bow, his parents had their hands over their ears. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or think about the writing process. I, I noticed looking at your own stuff that you did a thing about editing and the value of editing. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a real believer in handing your writing to someone else to read because they can see things that you can't. And, yes. and writing just gets better when somebody says, I don't actually know that word. <laughs> <laughs> or what are you trying to say? It or, makes no oh, sense. So. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big fan of the editing. <laughs> I agree, and I think that's. I mean, that's a good place to start, right? Is like learning that ability to accept the feedback from another person, whether or not it has to do with writing. I mean, you can talk about editing anything, but mm. you know, learning to accept that feedback and kind of giving somebody your, you know, your little your little creative baby, and yeah. they pick it apart. I mean, you start to, not only is it going to hurt, but then you start to kind of realize like what works, what doesn't and why. And I think that quote unquote failure within that is the thing that kind of leads you to like the successful end product, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Book, for, this, whatever. for this book, what I did new this time was I had four, I called them my beta readers, uh, people who were from, you know, good friends, but from different disciplines and parts of my sure. life. And I, I sent it out to all of them and took all their feedback. And, you know, for each chapter I wrote there, I wrote, I work in the program Scrivener. And so I mm. put their feedback in the sidebar and, and really sat with it and, and took it seriously. Um, and so I think my, my draft that I sent to my editor, Peggy Moran, I think it was a better first draft to her than my last book because so many more sets of eyes had already been on the thing. Even then Peggy and I went eight full rounds on this manuscript. Um, Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. It is a lot. Uh, We work super well together and enjoy uh, each other's feedback tremendously. And you know, she, she, she's funny. I'm funny. Our feedback to each other is funny. So that, that, that helps, but eight full rounds and, you know, and then it went to copy editing where Mm -hmm. seriously at least three actual errors still caught in copy editing which blows my mind and keeps me humble right and that's Mm -hmm. that's the thing is like you go through all of that work and then you still submit what you think is this final thing and there's still things right like that's the big piece of it like no one's perfect and that's okay but like learn from those mistakes right like you're gonna miss them be open to it 
Yeah. So. Yeah. One of the things I said to, to my publisher when we were working through contract things, I said, like, I have to have the last set of eyes on this before it goes out. Like, I just have to. I promise not to drag my heels. I promise not to change things just for the fun of it. But like, if this thing hits the world with a typo, I am the one who is going to be mortified over and over and right. over again. It has to be on me. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you want to, you, you want to see those things. Like you said, like, I'm not going to change anything, but I just, I want to see where I went wrong so I can learn from it, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Christine, it's been amazing talking to you. There's a lot, lot of good wisdom in this episode. Um, I'm super grateful for your time. Where can listeners reach out? Where can they find you online? Where they can they connect with you, find your books? Sure. All that stuff. I mean, the easiest place to start is just to Google my name using my middle name. It's Christine Marie Eberly. Um, my, my website is my name with hyphens in the middle. So Christine-Marie-Eberly.com. Um, thanks mom and dad for having my first and middle name start with the same letter as my last name, <laughs> which makes it look ridiculous when you run it straight together. Um, but on my website, they'll find my blog. They'll find my speaking page. I'm happy to come give a retreat or a talk, you know, just about anywhere. I do things on zoom. Um, they will find both of my books. So lots, lots to find there. And the new book comes out June 7th. If they pre-order through my website, they can get a signed personalized copy in the mail um, close to that date. So have at it. Excellent. Get those pre-orders in. They're so important. I, they really are. People <laughs> underestimate that. I guess I people who I, aren't authors. <laughs> I don't understand why, but I believe it. <laughs> yeah. The numbers, you know, right. so oh, put the business numbers. side of it. Oy. <laughs> anyway um again it's been great talking to you um we'll connect again offline and i hope you have the great rest of your day thank you glenn it's been great talking to you likewise have a good night thanks bye bye well that's it friends thanks for tuning in i hope to swing through again if you'd like to reach out, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at medium.com slash betterism. Be better at whatever it is you're building. And remember, friends, stay learning. <laughs>